Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. With the door now finally shut on the disastrous year of 2020, it's time to reflect on how vaping and tobacco harm reduction in general fared during a year that brought massive upheaval to the lives of so many. At the epicenter of the turmoil is the public health movement, and as so often is the case, its intersection with politics. Joining us today on RegWatch is Greg Conley, the president of the American Vaping Association. Greg, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. And while obviously we're focusing this episode on developments in the United States this past year and what the outlook is for 2021, first off for our viewers, Greg, around the world, why should they care about the state of vaping in the U.S.? So I know that this is an international broadcast and there are plenty of people in countries that are not facing the same threats as America. So they may wonder why should I care about America? And yes, it's true you from the Netherlands or from Europe or Russia, you may not be able to do much individually, but America is incredibly influential all over the world. The money that Michael Bloomberg is pumping into this campaign to ban all flavors all around the world, that campaign is originating in America. Not to mention the fact that our FDA, our CDC, even with all the turmoil of the last year, our FDA and our CDC, they're respected around the world. And so the actions that our regulatory agencies take they are highly influential, especially when you start going into low-income, middle-income countries. And obviously, the politics coming out of the U.S. has made an impact worldwide, too, as well, certainly with vaping. Yes. In America, we've had quite the last two months and quite the last uh, 24 months as well. And what happened to vaping in 2020, everything was preceded by what occurred in 2019. 2019, you had... Uh, the specter of Juul skyrocketing past 30-day usage by youth. You already had people starting to believe more and more the lies about vaping and that vaping could be just as harmful as smoking. And then last summer, 2019, we had the volley crisis where people like myself who went on national news and said, this is about illicit THC products, not legal nicotine vaping products, were lapped out of the room and, and acted as if we were making claims without evidence. Of course, that's what it turned out. But by the time the CDC and FDA admitted it, you already had President Trump pursuing a total flavor ban that suddenly sent the signal to Republicans that this is an issue that doesn't need to be partisan. They can get points by quote unquote, protecting the youth and who cares about the effects on small businesses. So heading into 2020, the hope was pre-pandemic, hey, this is our opportunity. We now have Tobacco 21, which went into effect at the beginning of the year. We now have flavored pods off of the market because of what President Trump eventually did. We now have statements of the CDC and FDA that it was illicit THC products, not nicotine vaping products. Maybe 2020 will be the year youth usage goes down and you can get some correct information out to the media, out to policymakers. Well, there were other plans and we've had a year of COVID where it has been next to impossible to get accurate, positive information out to anyone through this pandemic. So that's a lot there. And of course, obviously, 2021, 2020 was a terrible year. 2021, we don't know yet, but we can portend some things for 2021 out of what happened. Let me ask you this, Greg. How solid is the vaping industry in the U.S.? Because with flavor bans, you know, the pandemic and so forth, um, 
Is it strong or is it shaky? It has never been shakier than it is today. Unfortunately, you've had over the last two, three years, a lot of very smart, capable, determined people, either through bad state regulation or through just reading the tea leaves and looking at what the future could hold for them and deciding, okay, I'm either going to spend much more of my time on alternative markets like CBD or THC in states with legal or medicinal marijuana, or I'm just going to enter a brand new business, whether it's building homes, owning fast food restaurants, whatever alternatives there are out there, we've seen some good people see that these efforts to demonize vaping have worked, to reduce sales among adults have worked, and they can't stay anymore. So the main people with money in this industry are Chinese manufacturers, which don't yet fully recognize the turmoil going on in America. And then you have the large tobacco companies that are seeing their investments in menthol cigarettes, in menthol icos, in smokeless tobacco products. They're seeing those products get banned in cities and states, largely due to the public perception problem attached to vaping. So there's never been a time before where the independents in this industry facing the prospect of utter decimation either by their state government or by the feds with FDA, PMTA, decisions, as well as online sales restrictions and everything else. The independents are hurting and are some of them are on their last legs and we won't see them around in six months, uh, especially those focused uh, heavily on online sales that don't have regulatory teams to deal with fallout. So the pandemic obviously took some toll, but let me just uh, put us over here to vape shops blame sales decline more on a valley than COVID-19 from our good friend Jim McDonald here at uh, Vaping 360. So really in the end, we've been hearing this more and more that whereas the pandemic obviously did cause a problem, it was the Evalley scare, the misinformation, the outright lying, CDC dragging its feet and so forth that really caused most of the damage. Yes, you can see it in the Nielsen sales data. Nielsen sales data is only for grocery stores, convenience stores, et cetera. So it's not capturing open vapor products. But when you look at Nielsen sales, you can see that up until the late summer of 2019, there was a lot of growth happening in the sector. But then Avali came along and you saw sales start to decline and they've continued to either decline or remain flat over the last year plus. And the end result of all this has been more cigarettes being sold. The large tobacco companies were in an internal panic a couple of years ago when Juul was not just creating bad press by youth finding the product and deciding they like it, but they were actually causing a whole lot of adult smokers to put down their cigarettes. Well, a lot of that is over. And now you have people returning to cigarettes or smoking more rather than using both. So it's been a disaster on a lot of fronts over the last 18, 24 months. You would think that more people returning to smoking would be the biggest fear of public health. You would think. In Massachusetts, the fact that their flavor ban on all tobacco products and nicotine products went into effect, and the end result was the surrounding states, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, 
Connecticut, they saw their tax uh, revenue increase by nearly the same amount of revenue as Massachusetts lost. So you didn't actually see anyone or very few people quit smoking. What you saw was people either moving to Marlboro cigarettes, returning to smoking, or going across the border to neighboring states where, of course, they're going to campaign now to get flavor bans in place if they aren't already. And more people are smoking. That's the end result. And unfortunately, people just don't care. And you know that when you have data come out in a year, two years, that shows some sort of statistically significant increase in the smoking rate, who's going to get blamed? It's not going to be the prohibitionists that ban flavor vaping products. It's going to be the vaping industry for somehow causing people to relapse back to cigarettes. They'll certainly be, the researchers will certainly be scrambling to try to make that connection uh, for a gateway, for instance. Where are the flavor bans? I've got Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, California, of course, that potential ban got paused uh, because of an effort. Fill us in on where the bans are right now. Sure. So, yes, those four states do have bans in place now. The only exception in those four bans, New York, has a provision that says if a product gets a PMTA from the FDA, it can return to the market. Uh, but who knows whether there will be flavored products that pass through the PMTA process. We'll talk more about uh, potential uh, harms at the FDA coming up. And you now have the antis for the past lot, two years, they have been pursuing this doggedly at the local level. The goal is just like in California years ago where they went and started to do flavor bans, they started to do usage bans. The goal is you go to these states, you get the biggest cities to pass the bans, you get some smaller cities, some, some uh, conservative cities as well, and then you can go to the state government and you have legislators who are representing cities that don't allow these products. So why wouldn't you vote to ban the rest of the state from having them? So there's major efforts underway for 2021 in places like Minnesota, the entirety of the Northeast that doesn't already have a ban, and many other cities and states. And it's very difficult to fight, especially when the cigar people, the hookah people, the pipe tobacco people, they at the local level really do get engaged. You don't see the few remaining vape shops that are left because couple thousand have likely closed over the last couple of years, and some of them are now hybrid shops. They're not getting involved in the local process. And we need to change that or else we're not going to be around in, in many cities and states in a satisfying way for very long. What do you think was the biggest failure of the industry, let's just say last year or over the last couple of years, in terms of pressing its case? So the last nine, 10 months, it's been impossible for people in a lot of different industries to really press their case. But going back to even pre-Ivali, there was uh, one thing that has plagued this industry is the shiny new toy, where every six months or nine months, something new comes along, a new theory, a new, uh, a new strategy, and efforts get focused on that for six months, eight months, and then something else comes along or people get disenchanted. You have a lot of people who are well-meaning, but they haven't been involved in the government process before. So if you lose one battle, you think everything is lost forever. Uh, and then so you end up with 
good states with good people getting impacted terribly by bad legislation, they can no longer fund any efforts because they're out of business or they're barely hanging on. And it has just been extremely tough, but I have still have some optimism about the medium-sized part of the industry, not big tobacco, people that are employing people professionally and responsibly, that there will be uh, a path forward for those businesses at the very least. And we're gonna talk about uh, a little bit more of the politics around Trump and Biden and so forth as we get into the show here. What I'd like to do is I'd like to put our viewers' attention to the 2020 findings on all tobacco use and then of course the actual specifics on findings on the e-cigarette use in 2020 for youth. And the numbers, you know, have come down. They're saying up 1.8 million fewer users in uh, in the National Youth Tobacco Survey. That's huge. I mean, that's a big, big drop to have had happen. It, has that not cracked through at all here? I mean, that somehow they seem to be able to maintain the perception amongst the public that there's this huge so-called epidemic of teen vaping when even they're releasing numbers that are showing that it's fully dropping. So on the one hand, I think there are at least a few legislators and a few people out there who recognize to an extent that the crisis, the epidemic of vaping was overblown, especially when we've lived through nine, 10 months of a real epidemic actually killing people. But what you have is uh, antis who are able to use 2019 data without mentioning the 2020 data. I've been seeing it in state and local government hearings where they're still using the 2019 numbers. And when they do cite the 2020 numbers, they're able to spin it to say, hey, look, look at the number of people who are habitually using and look at all these problems with disposable vaping products. Um, and then you also have some people who see that data and they believe that it must have been taken in the middle of the pandemic, not before the pandemic, when people were still in school. So my hope is, is that you're gonna see survey data for the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021. There was uh, some internet survey data that got published about a month ago that suggested that between February of 2020, when the MYTS, MTF data was taken and September, October-ish, that you saw an even further decline in teen vaping. I think that's the case, that's true, especially in isolation and lockdowns. Hopefully that will hold uh, and it will hold long enough that we're able to get accurate information in the hands of state, local and federal lawmakers about it. Now, there obviously is a lot of bad news in 2020 in and of itself, even though we valley happened before that, definitely the ramifications within the marketplace you know, existed in 2022 as well. Let me ask you this, Greg, is there any good news for vaping in the U.S. during 2020? So heading into the September PMTA deadline, we saw the resiliency of the small and medium-sized portion of this industry on display. For years, the FDA believed that when the PMTA day came, that virtually the entirety of the industry, aside from perhaps 120 or less PMTAs for individual products, the entire industry would just go away, would just give up. Some partnerships may occur, but for the most part, people would just shut their doors and go home. Well, you had a great group of manufacturers 
as well as Lindsey Stroud, who's moved on to the Taxpayers Protection Alliance and is still working on these issues. And they figured out, at least for the short term, how to submit PMTAs to the FDA. They submitted what they felt was necessary to show that the product if was allowed to continue to be marketed. Each individual product would benefit population level health. And they probably delivered a million, two million plus PMTAs to the FDA. So many that the FDA today, four months after the deadline, um, they still don't have a full handle on all the applications they've received. So in the end, the FDA may decide and, and could very well decide that if a PMTA does not have all of X, Y, and Z, things that cost tens of thousands, if not into the hundreds of thousands of dollars to include, the applications are deficient. In that case, FDA will eventually send letters to manufacturers saying you have 30 or 60 days to supplement your application or it's done. And at the end of that 60 day period, your product's not allowed. Well, if that happens, we're gonna fight, but you know what? September was supposed to be the drop dead day. Before that, it was probably March or April of 2020 was supposed to be the drop dead date. Before that, well, it was 2022, then it was back to 2020. Before that, it was 2018. So there have been many dates that were supposed to be the end. And this industry full of resiliency has refused to stop, uh, has refused to just die. So that is the positive thing coming out of 2020, that there are still fighters uh, willing to uh, keep keep going for their businesses and for their customers. Obviously, uh, we're looking at a Biden administration. I mean, that's a surety. He's going to be sworn in either, you're either watching this after he's been sworn in or just right before as uh, the 46th president of the United States. The Biden administration, do, is there a lot of hope under a Biden administration? Because I know that it's always tends to be Democrats that have been pushing the hardest against vaping. So no, there is not a great deal of hope. It's about managing uh, who you could get in different positions. A couple, two months ago, there were rumblings that Michelle Lujan Grisham, the reasonable Democrat new, uh, governor of New Mexico and former Congresswoman who actually signed on to one of the bills to modernize the predicate date and stop the government from destroying vaping. She was in consideration to be HHS secretary. Even in that position, even with her past, we would never expect her to become a champion for vaping or to do anything to push modernization or fixing the PMTA process, but she may have been a roadblock to full flavor bans or completely just denying every almost every PMTA application pending before the FDA. We no longer have her now, it's Xavier Bacara, the former, uh, well now California Attorney General, who has been a bit of a prohibitionist on vaping, not gonna be friendly. The big question right now is who will be the director of the FDA, uh, or the, rather the commissioner of the FDA? Right now we're down to two different names, uh, Janet Woodcock, who's gonna be the acting director. She is the longtime director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA, CEDAR. Uh, she seems very much to be a by the books regulatory person. If it's Janet Woodcock as commissioner, she could uh, give more freedom, give more independence to Mitch Zeller at the Center for Tobacco Products. That's not exactly a great deal of optimism because Mitch Zeller has not been a great friend of vaping, but compared to the second name, that's being bantied around for FDA commissioner, Joshua Sharfstein. If you've been around for a long time, you may recognize that name. It was in 2009 when Joshua Sharfstein at the advice 
uh, campaign for tobacco-free kids, American Lung, American Heart, et cetera. Sharfstein held a big press conference declaring that vaping products contain carcinogens, which were actually at equal amounts as in a piece of nicotine gum or the patch, and that vaping products were going to be marketed to children. They were going to hook kids. We just don't know if they're safer than cigarettes. And then after the FDA lost in court twice, three times on declaring e-cigarettes to be drugs, in the last year and a half, Joshua Sharfstein has written an op-ed complaining that the FDA was second-guessed by federal judges saying that he decided the law wrong. So even after a decade of evidence showing that vaping has helped millions of smokers get off of deadly cigarettes, Joshua Sharfstein, who is a professor linked to uh, Michael Bloomberg through his College of Public Health, he, if he comes into this, our chances of PMTAs being accepted and actually uh, reviewed properly I think go down because he's not going to detach himself from his ideology. Well, quite a difference, of course, uh, when you have an FDA commissioner who's on the record uh, as being very anti-vaping. Yes, if it's Josh Sharfstein, there's trouble in the future because Sharfstein does not strike me as the type that is going to sit back while let's say CTP doesn't approve mango and apple and and fruit flavors but maybe they'd approve a coffee flavor or a cappuccino flavor i don't think or even menthol i don't think sharfstein is going to sit by uh and just allow that to happen because he is a prohibitionist through thick and thin now quite a bit of quite a few vapors and vaping advocates out there of course naturally you know stem from the democratic side and there's those that were trump supporters too as well so there's obviously a little bit of tussle going on over the last couple of months with regards to the election and how that was going to all shape out over the last couple of weeks. And then some of these uh, vaping advocates have been out there saying, oh, we don't have anything to worry about a President Biden because he'll probably not have a lot of time for this issue and will probably just, you know, promote somebody into the FDA commissioner job that will be science based and will, you know, follow along. But it sounds like, though, that if we get Sharfstein here, that could be very disastrous. So I don't think that there are too many people who are saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about. It'll be fine under Joe Biden. But I also think there is a lot of uh, naivete after all these years, or rather the last year and a half, what we've had to deal with because of what President Trump did. And now what we're dealing with because Republicans in the Senate, particularly John Cornyn of Texas, insisted on the online sales ban with no opportunity for negotiation being included in the COVID omnibus bill. Uh, and so those who believe just this simple mindset where Republicans are anti-regulation and they're great for us versus the evil Democrats that just wanna kill us and send us back to smoking cigarettes, that's a wrong outlook on things. Unquestionably, if you're looking for who, what's the, the best chance of having less regulation, of getting deadline extensions, of getting some uh, form of regulatory uh, understanding out of an agency, yes, you're most likely going to say it's going to be better with a Republican. But remember, it was President Obama's OMB director back in 2014, 2015, that told the FDA, no, you cannot include 
a immediate ban on flavors and vaping products without PMTAs in your original deeming regulation. It was Obama's OMB director that did that. Meanwhile, during the Trump administration, we had President Trump go out of the Oval Office because he listens to whoever the last two people to talk to him. Those are the right opinions. And he went in the Oval Office and said, vaping is killing people and we need to get the flavors to protect the kids. Uh, so no party is perfect. There, are, It depends on who gets in there. And if Joshua Sharfstein's in there, there's a lot to worry about. If Janet Woodcock's in there, there's still a lot to worry about. Uh, but it, it seems like there would be a more science-based approach. Tell us, Greg, Trump signs budget bill with vape mail ban included. What is the vape mail ban? So about 10 years ago, Congress passed a bill called the PACT Act, P-A-C-T. And the PACT Act updated what was known as the Jenkins Act. And it related to protecting state cigarette revenue. What you had as the internet developed, as mail order sales became more and more common, states with very high cigarette tax rates like New York, they were having Native American tribes as well as people in states like Virginia with low tax cigarettes. They were taking online orders for cigarettes, shipping cartons and cartons of cigarettes to people in the state of New York, and New York wasn't getting their tax dollars. Plus, there was some minimal risk that a kid with a credit card could go order a pack or a carton of cigarettes. So Congress packed the, passed the PACT Act, and the PACT Act, uh, one, forbids the USPS from shipping vaping products, except with limited exceptions, such as business-to-business -business sales, where each side of the transaction has gotten approval from the USPS. Alaska and Hawaii, uh, will, I believe, will continue to be okay for USPS sales. But by and large, this is a total ban on consumer uh, shipping to consumers of vaping products. Second, and the biggest detrimental impact, is the PACT Act set up this complicated system where if you are going to sell, and the PACT Act was designed not to provide regulation, but to essentially shut down anyone wishing to sell cigarettes or smokeless tobacco online, because if you are an internet retailer, for every state local government and Native American tribe with a tax on, in this case, vaping products. You will need to, one, make sure you are in compliance with all licensing laws regarding selling to uh, individual consumers. Two, you will need to uh, charge the tax. For most states, you will need to charge and collect the individual state, local government, Native tribe tax on vaping products. And then you will need to remit that tax along with a document showing every single customer you sold to over the prior month, what they bought, what their address is, how much they paid. And you will need to start using a non-USPS shipping service. Um, and FedEx is out because FedEx has said they won't ship vaping products. You'll have to use a shipping service that is not only not USPS and now not UPS, but one that verifies identity upon delivery through checking an ID. So it's going to be a major increase in shipping costs and just the logistics of figuring out state by state, local by local, Native American tribe by Native American tribe, what you owe and on what products, because every state has a different definition of what a vaping product is. It's a giant mess. And unfortunately, uh, what's especially absurd, the USPS component. One year after the passage of the PACT Act, USPS put into place a service 
where they can check ID for pharmaceuticals and alcohol. And when we were trying to lobby members of Congress, it went in one, in, one, it went in one year, ear and out the other. It was pretty much, if you can't convince Senator Dianne Feinstein that this is a, an appropriate amendment, we don't care. That was the attitude of Senator Cornyn. And as a result, we got what we got. And it's a very bad bill. And you've got a quote here, Greg, uh, that they used in Vaping 360. Quote, this is not a law designed to regulate the mail order sale of vaping products to adults. It's an attempt to eliminate it. Correct. And if they were truly about protecting youth, but also protecting small and medium sized businesses, there were ways that you could have made this bill a heck of a lot worse. You could have allowed the USPS to actually ship the products. You could have required each individual seller to register with ATF so they could make sure that people were following uh, the USPS policy. They could have modernized the reporting system, actually making state and local governments uh, go forth and say, okay, this is uh, send information to the federal government that can then send the information, provide that information to retailers saying this individual local government in the middle of Tennessee with 20,000 people in it, well, now they have this tax and it impacts this product, this product, this product. Uh, you could have online payment portals uh, and online uh, ways to send customer information that you're required to. You could have quarterly payments rather than monthly to cut down on the amount of paperwork that's gonna be required. But no, they stuck us into a 2010 law that was designed with no technology in mind just to shut down uh, illegal sales of cigarettes. And there was no gigantic uh, online market for cigarettes and smokeless tobacco that was supporting people, that was giving jobs to people. And Congress just decided to throw it into that gigantic package and we're left to clean up the mess. So let's take a look at the gigantic package you mentioned, and this is the small chunk of the omnibus bill buried, buried 5,136 pages in, and the prevention of online sales of e-cigarettes to children. So all of these measures that you're talking about, the implications of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, comes down with, to the issue that in this bill, they just simply define e-cigarettes as cigarettes. Yes, and the definition, if you look at it, is extremely broad. So broad that as I raised to Marijuana Moment, a great website that does a lot of news coverage on cannabis and CBD, the reality is that the definition is so broad that it covers CBD liquids, standalone vaping products intended for CBD or cannabis, nicotine-free e-liquids, uh, components and parts. It is extremely broad to the point where it should be of great concern to those, even those that don't sell nicotine products, should be concerned about compliance. For me, Greg, this just is an extension of what's been happening the entire time. Uh, public health has simply said they are tobacco products, they are cigarettes and should be treated as such. And we just keep bumping up against this terminology battle and war that's going on. I mean, the deeming rule the FDA uh, uh, implemented in and of itself is exactly that, it's a definitional issue. Yes, um, at least with FDA, Congress had previously said derived from tobacco, so that gave them some measure of authority over nicotine-containing liquids. And the FDA has not directly stated that, oh, any product whatsoever, if it could be used for a nicotine product, could, that it 
falls under their jurisdiction. This is Congress just saying, hey, all those definitional problems that FDA is dealing with, how do we follow the law and do things legally? We'll just push that aside and use our own definition that gives us authority over things that don't even contain nicotine. Uh, and it's a mess in the making. And just to be clear for people listening who may not be familiar with the law, the law is not in effect yet. The law uh, on taxation goes into effect 90 days from the date of enactment, probably somewhere between December 27th and December 31st, January 1st. And then the USPS provision, the provision requires USPS to put out a rule banning the shipping of vaping products and to put out that rule within 120 days. And so once they put out that rule and finalize it, that's when the USPS component goes into effect, but the taxation component will seemingly be in effect uh, in uh, the end of March. For vapors, Greg, that live in the U.S. that are used to, accustomed to ordering e-liquids and coils and devices through the mail, are, are they still going to be able to do that once this is implemented? Is it all done and over? Vape mail is shut down. So in a world where everyone actually follows the law, this, this doesn't kill vape mail entirely. It's just a question of will it be worth it? because you're gonna to need to spend, who knows, $15, $20 on shipping and make sure you are at home or someone who is an adult is at home to show their ID. And if you're in a state with a heavy tax on vapor products, many people have gone online to avoid those taxes. I don't think that's the bulk uh, at all of why people go shop online, but there are certainly some people that they may not even be aware. They've been shopping online so long, they may not even be aware that their state has a ridiculous, insane tax on vaping products. But if you, uh, for those who really want it, there are going to be some that stick around because there are companies large enough to start following all the laws. And of course, those good companies are going to be negatively impacted by the many fly-by-night companies that are gonna keep selling just what they're selling today and not change a thing until they uh, are forced to or they get a letter from somebody or they get sued. That's been a hallmark of this industry. A lot of people who just wanna go and make their money and wait and see what the consequences are. So those businesses are going to hurt the ones that try to stick around and do the right thing. You mentioned that uh, President Trump caused some problems for the industry, I'm assuming that the big one there was on September 11th, 2019, when he made the statements about bringing in a flavor ban and that uh, vaping products were not necessarily very good morally. Is that it in and of a nutshell? Was it that one action that really caused a lot of problems? When it comes to President Trump, keep in mind that without President Trump appointing Scott Gottlieb, who eventually showed his true colors on the issue, without President Trump appointing Scott Gottlieb, 2018 would have passed with a PMTA date set for August of 2018. It's unlikely that under a different president, that date would have changed unless a federal judge said, you didn't give enough guidance, you must change it, uh, which was certainly not guaranteed. So by delaying the guideline, uh, by rather by delaying when the PMTA went into effect, that was incredibly important. But then in the midst of a volley, President Trump decided based off of Kellyanne Conway and Secretary Azar, his HHS director that's, that became incredibly anti-vaping, they wanted to just get rid of the flavor issue, get it off their backs. And so they convinced President Trump, yes, you should ban all flavored vaping products and it's gonna help you with suburban moms. 
And that uh, created then the about the three longest months of my life that ended, uh, or rather in the middle of all that, in the middle of doing a rally in DC, doing events in front of multiple President Trump campaign rallies, doing national TV, had the meeting at the White House where I was a couple seats down uh, from President Trump. Did that action by President Trump, was it in and of itself something that the president and his political advisors, as you just mentioned, therefore made the issue political? Or did vapors in their advocacy in some manner or another, you know, make the issue more political than it needed to be? And then thus did that cause some problems? Because, of course, anything that Trump touches or touched turned toxic. So President Trump taking his stance and saying, we're gonna have an immediate flavor ban on all nicotine vaping products. And the only way, uh, the end effect of that would be the only way that flavors would come back to the market would be if a product passed through the PMTA process. That was an immediate dire threat to the very existence of the industry, particularly the small and medium sized players that could not just sell cigarettes for a year and then maybe return to the vaping category with the government's per uh, permission. With President Trump, uh, I don't even think his biggest fans and supporters would deny that he has a big ego and cares what other people think about him, especially those who are supportive and have been supportive of his efforts. And so the only rational strategy faced with that was to go out and amplify the voices of Republicans who felt that if President Trump banned flavors, they could not in good conscience vote for him. And so we had to go out to national media, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, and pitch stories saying that this is the biggest threat to the Trump presidency. And of course, reporters love stories about Republicans fighting Republicans or conservatives fighting conservatives, or something's gonna impact the Republican president. And they took advantage of that, we took advantage of that, and it created an environment where President Trump saw that there was a lot of backlash, he rethought his actions, and we still have an industry today. But in the eyes and the, in the minds of many people, that did connect vaping and vapors to Republicans. And that's gotta change. We need to do more to make this a bipartisan issue. We need to uh, amplify the voices of drug reformers and uh, liberals who believe that prohibition is not the answer. Uh, and we also need to continue to build up conservative voices to ensure that uh, there is good representation from all sides as to the importance of harm reduction for adult smokers. I find it fascinating that we vape, we vote could turn you know, toxic in a, in a sense. But I guess that's only when the candidate that you're trying to reach with that message loses. Yes. If President Trump was about to begin his second term, having won the state of Michigan, the states of Michigan and Georgia by 750 votes, well, the vapors would be out there saying, hey, President Trump, we came back, we delivered, and by God, let's have some PMTA reform. Let's figure this out. Well, when you lose, and by the way, once the pandemic hit, the prospect of people really voting based off of vaping beyond very minimal numbers, it wasn't realistic because you came out of the pandemic heading into November, in my mind, most Americans very firmly on one side or the other. And there would have been activities around vaping without the pandemic, but the pandemic meant that 
holding big campaign rallies or flying around the country trying to do things simply wasn't responsible at the time. Um, and yes, this has uh, put an albatross around the neck of the industry, but I don't think it's something that can't be uh, worked out, especially when you're starting to have uh, slowly more progressive voices that as some of them have quit smoking with vaping, have, have pushed back against the lies themselves. I think they're going to be important voices as well alongside us. What about the lobbying effort? How uh, might the changeover in administrations affect access uh, to the administration? I don't know how much access many of the lobbyists in D.C. have had with President Trump that they won't have with a Biden administration. The one big difference is that President Biden is not going to be reading Twitter at three o'clock in the morning. President Biden likely has not ever sent a tweet himself, wouldn't understand how to do it if it was put in front of him. He's just not a technological person. Well, now you actually, if you wanna change policy, you do need to engage in a lot of the traditional lobbying, not just telling 10,000 people to go on Twitter and get angry. So that's part of the process. And I do believe with Biden is not gonna be a radical Democrat administration. There's certainly some people uh, radical on the anti-tobacco side will have undue influence, undue levels of influence, but a lot of the traditional forms of lobbying, doing many meetings, shaking hands, when it's okay to shake hands one day, that's going to be, um, a, a part of the federal strategy. Talking about vaping activism, Greg, has there, have you seen a, an immediate difference now that uh, the Trump supporters have kind of gotten quiet uh, because of everything that happened? W were they at an epicenter of vaping ap activism, do you think? I think for many of these people that they're not gonna go away. They're not gonna leave their pet causes just because their president of choice lost. It remains to be seen. 2021 is just starting now, and we'll see what the response is to the calls to action that groups like CASA and ABA will be putting out for many different state bills this year. It's gonna be a difficult year because many state legislatures, if not most, they're not just allowing the general public to come into their very old, poorly ventilated buildings with people that are close to senior citizens packed in them. And, this is a legislative session where we need vapors to not just send the form email. We need vapors to actually make several phone calls, ask for a call back from their state legislator to talk about why vaping is important to them. So I'm hopeful that we're going to see the vapors get energized again. So as you were saying, just to be clear, because of the pandemic in 2021, it's still going. So that's actually gonna cause a problem for activism because you can't call them to show up down at the courthouse or down at the uh, legislature. No, and that's a major change from hundreds of years of state legislative action. My ideal for a time when the public can actually attend and sit and see face-to-face -face with state lawmakers, my opinion is that states shouldn't be doing massive things this year that aren't related to the pandemic or saving jobs, et cetera. They shouldn't just be banning consumer products when the consumers can't attend the hearing and see them face-to-face. -face. Um, 
I don't think many people are going to listen to my viewpoint. So that's why we need vapors and small business owners to get activated again. So Gregor, the title of this episode, I, I've got it down as pride and prejudice, because it seems to me there's kind of a mixture of both that is operating at the anti-level, at the political level and so forth. What do you think about that? So Dr. Michael Siegel once put it that what you're, what we're dealing with on the vaping side with tobacco control is just this toxic combination of prestige, ideology, and pride. And of course, the ideology is it looks like smoking, so it must be evil. The pride is that they've been fighting this product and harm reduction in general even longer than vaping's been around. And to actually come out and admit, maybe we were wrong, maybe we were a little too high strung when it came to these products, that is something that someone who is extremely prideful and egotistical does not want to do. And third, you have prestige. When you are a politician who responds favorably to the requests of the American lung or American cancer or heart association, you are invited to gala dinners. If you're an employee at the heart, cancer, lung, you have very nice benefits. You are secure in your job knowing that they have gigantic funders that are going to keep going and keep them in business for years to come. So it is lonely compared to your many, many friends and many, many opportunities you have if you are anti-vaping, it's lonely out there if you're a voice of reason. And we need to make it a more accommodating place for people to push back against the narratives of tobacco control. But yes, it's not just all about, it's certainly not about big tobacco convincing these people to go after vaping, that's nonsense. It is this toxic combination, ideology, prestige, pride, and heck, let's add in there, Michael Bloomberg. Well, let me, let's wrap this up with this last question. And that's, do you believe, yes or no, and, ex and expand on it, your answer, please, is public health being honest with the people? When it comes to vaping, my area of expertise where I actually feel confident opining on professionals and how they do their jobs, no. By and large, public health in America is rigidly dominated by people who are ideologically predisposed to believe anything negative about a product that resembles smoking or is a consumer product containing nicotine. Many of these people, Clive Bates has called them useful idiots before. And of course, I'm such a nice guy, I don't call anybody an idiot. But Clive, he's a, he's a bit hard-edged. And they're useful idiots because they believe what is being put out there by groups that they think are doing the right thing, the heart, cancer, lung, campaign for tobacco-free kids. And the useful idiots parrot that information and they don't believe anything opposing it. So no, public health on this issue by and large in America is not being honest.